2: So we're watching Roots in our history class, and we get to the the point where Kunta is getting hung on the tree. They're telling him that his name is Toby because he's identifying with his African name. And they're saying, yo, your name is Toby. He's saying, no, my name is Kunta. They keep whipping him. They keep whipping him. My classmates thought it was a great idea to call me Toby.
1: Like that was what they
2: took from that. And so having those moments, for me, that was, I just can't try to fit in here anymore. I just have to do my own thing. Hi, my name's Castel Valer Couturier and I'm a model minority.
1: Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And
0: I'm Raman Sekul, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
1: Through conversations with some really interesting people We uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world.
0: Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about.
1: Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, boy, girl, or anything in between.
0: This is a show about all of you for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Castel Valère Couturier. Couturier, I believe. Couturier, Couturier, I believe.
1: I'm so sorry, Castel. Sorry, Castel, but we we do love you.
0: <laughs> Castel is the founder of SoundOff, a global wireless audio solutions brand. Its audio technology and event services just make it possible to do, like a lot of really cool immersive experiences. And that's kind of how I met Castel years ago. A mutual friend from Hawaii <laughs> was in the city, had a happy hour, and I meet this guy. And he's pretty cool. And years later, I, I asked said mutual friend, Hi, Kyle. Hey, you want to be on model minorities? And he's like, I'm not interesting. You know who is Castell is? So I was like, the sound off guy. And it was He was super
1: interesting, Remen. Super interesting.
0: Well, we have, I relate to all of our guests, but I related to so much of Castellas story, even though my parents aren't from Martinique, an island in the West Indies, yeah. you know, like, yeah. but we went to a boarding school. So that's-
1: You same. did. You both went to boarding schools. Cassell and I both are native New Yorkers. I love And to,
0: you're both super snobby about it. Yeah, we're yeah. pretty
1: snobby about it. I was <laughs> I was happy to hear how, I mean, that's that's kind of like a native thing. You know, you you sort of expect your fellow New Yorkers to be really snobby about it. So that was really validating.
0: <laughs> to the rest of us visitors. <laughs>
1: Exactly. He talked about his experience with his big brother within the Big Brother Big Sisters program. And he's been, I think he had mentioned he's been, he's known his big brother since he was eight years old. So they've been, I know they've been, do you call it working together or I don't know, partner? He's, well, he's had a mentor for over 20 something years. And it's sort of incredible listening to his story, like realizing how much of an impact this person had on Castell's life. And so that was that was pretty neat to to kind of hear about it like from someone that benefited fitted from the program versus talking to some of our guests who are Big Brothers and Big Sisters themselves.
0: Yeah, screw those guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know the other thing that I just really related to, and I think all of us can, is the idea of fitting in, making mm-hmm. the choice yeah. to realize that fitting in isn't the goal; being yourself is. We all have that happens to all of us at a different point in our lives, and. What caused that? What caused the realization? And he talks about the moment where he's like, you know what? Enough. Enough yeah. of trying that one moment in school while they were watching Roots. And I was like, yeah. Like, yeah, I just, man, I just really related to this guy. And so yeah. we have a lot of different experiences to be clear, but it's just his
1: approach and his sensibility.
0: Yeah, I just felt a lot in common with because Yeah.
1: And I, I feel like he was really thoughtful about his answers. Also very funny with sort of, you know, Pointing out certain things, like his, he talk, told us a pretty funny story about his seafood allergy and how that made him, you know, non-Caribbean <laughs> in some ways. Um, but he was just such a pleasure to have on the show.
0: Yeah, and you can find us on our Food Network show, Mom Chefs Compete. That's,
1: right. That's right. We're gonna we're gonna start a we're gonna start a, a cookbook of model minority mom foods. Right.
0: Yeah. So we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with our friend Costello. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so
2: much for having me.
0: So, you know, a lot of people might know about your professional background, but what they might not know is who you were before all that started. Can you tell us a story about growing up, a story from your childhood?
2: Oh, boy. So many stories. <laughs> where where to begin? <laughs>
1: Start with the clean one, and then we'll get into
2: the (laughs) dirty one (laughs) I think one of the stories that sort of defines a lot of my life actually revolves around my childhood and and the friendships that I didn't have. I grew up in New York City, and New York in the 80s was definitely had its challenges. It was a little rough. I grew up in Harlem as well. And from, especially from kindergarten through fifth grade, I changed schools every year. I was getting picked on and beat up. And my mom was just like, we're going to try somewhere new. We're going to try somewhere new.
0: Why? Why are we getting picked on and beat up?
2: Because I didn't really fit in. Fascinating because growing up in Harlem, I went to a bunch of public schools earlier in life and I just didn't fit in with the kids and like the kids in the neighborhood. My mom wanted to make sure that I I spoke proper English, you know, first-generation American, and that was deeply rooted in she wanted me to study. I was in Saturday classes and all that kind of stuff. I played tennis and chess, and I just wasn't like any of the other kids in the neighborhood, so I was an easy target. And so that was really interesting from my perspective being in that space as a kid. And then uh, as I went into middle school, I kind of got the reverse because I was the only black kid in my school with a bunch of wealthy white kids. And so... (laughs) (laughs) it was like, yeah, I just couldn't win anywhere. But I think that was a really defining experience for me in my life because I spent, I think most of my childhood just trying to fit in, trying to find a way to make friends and and to be like everyone else. And it wasn't until I think I was 12 where I just said, you know what? I don't really care about what anyone else thinks. I'm just going to be myself. You That's know, the moment, tired. isn't it? That's the, that moment. Was the moment, and everything changed. The fact for me. that
1: you found that at twelve is huge. Most of yeah, us, yeah, mine was
2: fifteen. Yeah,
1: most. <laughs> well, I was going to say it wasn't until I was in my twenties that I could even figure that out. So good for you.
2: I think I was just so exhausted.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And I was like, you know, I don't think I'm a bad person. I've got things to offer. Maybe if I just start being more authentic to who I am, maybe I'll start to attract the people that actually care and want to be engaged. And and that happened. Absolutely.
0: I I love that you said it's exhausting. I don't love that for (laughs) a 12-year-old Castell. (laughs) But it's, yeah, man, because it's an impossible standard to measure up to these people you're trying to get to like you. Everything you were saying, that's why I wanted to probe. I didn't play chess that well. But (laughs) just the idea of being cool or fitting in was defined on someone else's terms and it was yeah. an impossible standard. And it wasn't until, yeah. sorry, you just, you just reawakened a lot of stuff in me. Yeah. You know. that's
2: <laughs> and <right>. I'm sorry.
1: No, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what this show is for. It's therapy. This is really my therapy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's therapeutic for us. You guys are just, you're a shrinks essentially. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Kindred spirits <laughs> over, over here.
1: here. So you mentioned your mom being concerned about you guys not having an accent. Are you from New York originally? Were you born in New
2: York? Yes, born in New York City. It's actually funny. A lot of people never place that.
1: Do you know who else was born in New York City?
2: Me. Hey, we're unicorns. <laughs> we, <laughs> we are. We're, we're New York people.
1: So, no one's
0: born here. We all come to New York. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm so, in... so
1: Castel, this is our moment to kind of bond over this. But I always sort of, not that I get annoyed, but I do feel some sort of way when people make reference to New York and they call it like their city or they'll talk about how they've been in New York for so long. And I'm like, but you haven't.
2: <laughs> right. You're not the from snobs. here. Snobs. No, you can't claim it unless you're from here. I right. mean, it's, right. it takes a lot to make it here. And so you can't just be like, oh yeah, I spent 10 years in New York. I'm a New Yorker. No, you're not. No, you're not.
1: You're
0: not.
2: You're still a visitor.
0: No, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to fight back. He's one of Your them. Mom He's one dad- of them yeah. <laughs> Your mom and dad made it here. Mm-hmm. And you were born into it with the privilege of being in the, and I know it wasn't a privilege to be clear, but the rest of us had a dream and we came and we struggled. We, 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 we didn't have the luxury. <laughs> it, no, it's, it's similar to immigrants, right? <laughs> Respect for immigrants who left everything behind, came across the sea where they didn't speak the language, they didn't eat the food, like your parents, right? Like my parents. And then versus the quote-unquote real Americans. I don't think there are any real Americans. I'm going to just take umbrage. I don't think they're real New Yorkers either. I think we're all – well, I'm not. I, I live in Connecticut now. but.
1: Um. <laughs> <laughs> You fled. You it's fled okay. I
2: lived in Connecticut for a brief moment as well. So, <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. I, worked, I worked in Connecticut. I worked in Connecticut. Does that count? <laughs> what is this a podcast about? <laughs> I don't even know. All right, Castel, going back to you. So your moment happened at 12. 12 is like middle school. And for most of us, 12 is a very formative time where most people actually feel they are trying to find themselves. And so tell us more about that moment and what it was like in middle school and what that experience was like for you.
2: Well, my middle school experience was very non-traditional. I went to a small private school that specialized in music. And when I say small, I mean there's 32 kids in my school and nine kids in my graduating class. It was an all-boys school, or it it is an all-boys school. It was modeled after the Westminster Abbey Choir School in the UK. And we sang for St. Thomas Church six days a week or six times a week. We did master concerts and it was a boarding school. I was one of the only students from New York at this boarding school, which is kind of funny. Everyone else, I mean, they from all over the world, from South Korea to California to...
1: How did your mom find out about that school? Like, how did you get into that school?
2: I got very lucky for a number of reasons. I spent my fourth grade and part of my fifth grade at a school in Harlem called the Children's Storefront. And my headmaster there took a real liking to me, Again, I sort of stuck out because I wasn't like most of the kids. I I was a total nerd as a kid. And during school, I just went to the library and I pulled a bunch of books and I would read during class. I was acing all my classes, but also reading all through class as well, just because I wasn't super stimulated. And he had a relationship with the headmaster at the St. Thomas Choir School at the time and I got a late admission which is very unusual because again it's the school is capped at 32 kids and I started there midway through my 5th grade which pretty much never happened and that school is very tough to get into you had to there was an IQ test you had to know how to read music you had to play an instrument you had to be able to sing And then you had to survive what they call the trial week where they essentially as a nine-year-old, they throw you in to this dorm life. You have to sort of survive a week. And then after that, you have to cough up the money, which was a problem for me because my mom was a a New York City teacher, single parent making $26,000 a year. So I got a lot of support in order to go there. And so, yeah, it was a total fluke that I ended up there in the first, not a, a fluke. I mean, I was talented, but I got lucky in that I had someone that sort of helped me get there.
1: Right. That's amazing. And that sounds like such a unique opportunity. What I always wondered, and this isn't totally related to model minorities, but I've always wondered about boarding school and what that felt like. I mean, was it, was it kind of like a Harry Potter experience of just completely being fun or was it
2: really overwhelming to be by yourself at that age? Well, I will say it was a Harry Potter experience in that we did wear capes. (laughs) (laughs) No joke. There was some donor who donated a ton of money to the school and bought us all capes. So we when we're walking to church on Sundays or we're going to special events, we had these capes. They were totally ridiculous.
1: That's so cool.
2: (laughs) But it really took a very unique kind of kid. For me, I was always very independent. And so it wasn't that big of a deal once I got there to just sort of navigate. And you were there nine to 16 or nine to 17 then? I was there, no, nine to 13. So I was there fifth through eighth yeah. grade. And then I went to another boarding program for high school, which is why I was in Connecticut.
0: No, because yeah, I went to a boarding school for 11th and 12th grade.
2: Yeah. yeah,
1: Run in, okay. I never knew that about you.
2: There you go.
0: Yeah, but it was a, not as cool as Castell's. We didn't have K. It was a math and science school. So it was like Hogwarts <laughs> for nerds is how I describe it actually. More more Enders game, more Enders game than Harry Potter. But yeah. No
1: Quidditch. Definitely no Quidditch, huh?
2: Yeah, no Quidditch. So yeah, I mean it, it took a, a very unique kind of person to go to that school. And we had a very aggressive academic schedule, sports schedule, music schedule, the whole thing. But I I loved it. I loved being there. I loved the fact that I just kind of got to be my own person and and do my own thing, blaze my own trail. And I talked to people often about that experience, like, how could your parents possibly send you off at nine? And I said, I wanted to go. I was super excited. There wasn't a moment that I'd ever felt homesick or sad. I was just, the whole program was, was pretty invigorating and it was super special.
0: What did that lead you to? I mean, I'm not, and that's not a question about what do you do now, but it's more of you go to this boarding school with a pretty heavy bents to both arts and academics. That's not the save by the bell experience. You don't go to big state after that, or maybe you do. What did that lead you to? What did, you, what did that make you want
2: to be when you grew up, I guess? From the time I was a kid, I wanted to be a pilot. Middle school really did nothing to put me on that trajectory. <laughs> um, but what it did do was it opened up my mind to possibilities. And what I mean by that is my first friends that I made in life and also in in middle school were at St. Thomas. And one of my friends, a guy, I'm still very close with Nick, we used to have these, we called it free weekends, which weren't really free weekends because we would get off of school Friday afternoon and we'd have to be back Saturday night so we could sing the 9 a.m. services on Sunday. But for some of the kids that live further away, oftentimes they would go to one of the other students' homes for the the free weekend. So there was a couple kids in my class that lived in New Canaan, Connecticut. And so I I said, hey, could I come out for a weekend? And this is a a story that's just, it's super, I'll make it real brief, but I, I told it at Nick's wedding. But he was like, why do you want to come to my home? Why don't you go to your own home? Oh. <laughs> but he had me come up and actually it was him and my other friend, Mike, they both lived in New Canada and I went up and I'd never seen anything like that.
0: It's like a foreign country. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: The houses, the cars, the opulence. The, I mean, it was just... It was a whole new world. And so I actually ended up going to high school in New Canaan. I got into this program called A Better Chance, which they place inner city students into prep schools, boarding schools, et cetera, around the country. And they have a program in New Canaan that's for, there's eight students that essentially board in New Canaan, going to New Canaan High School. And each year they accept two students. And so I was one of those two. And so being at St. Thomas, getting that exposure to New Canaan, and my friends' homes, their dads were like hedge fund managers and they had homes in Nantucket and stuff like that. It was just something that was completely outside of my Perspective growing up. So you went from being like, I want to be a pilot, to I want to be in quantitative
0: finance. Like, I <laughs> what did what did that inform, <laughs> or was it I don't want that, or, or was, was it, it I, I want to
1: buy I want to buy a jet? What which one was right.
2: it? right? It didn't inform anything about my career just yet. My career has been very nonlinear. Mm-hmm. But what it did do is it just sort of broadened my horizons as to what my potential could be. Right, even right, if I right. wasn't a pilot. If I wanted to have a home like my friends in New Canaan, kind of what it would take to get there. It's a funny story when I was – actually, it's not a funny story. It's just a story. From my childhood, one of my neighbors in our building was a reporter for New York One. And, you know, outside of – call it like drug dealers or whatever it is, or in the neighborhood, he was definitely the most successful person that I knew, right? And I looked up to him. And I remembered he got a promotion, and he went and he bought a Ford Explorer, or a Ford Expedition. It was so cool. I remember riding around with him and his family and being like, "Man, when I grew up, I want a Ford Explorer or a Ford Expedition, whatever it was." You know, yeah. that was like my dream vehicle. I had a big brother through Big Brothers Big Sisters growing up, and I remember he came and picked me up, and he had a Volvo, and I'd never seen a Volvo, and it had a cell phone in it. They had like the cell phones in the main console, and that broadened my horizons. Right? It was just like a, a, <laughs> a complete shift of being like, "Wow, this is." what my life could look like. If I do well in school, I stay focused, which is very different from the perspective that most kids growing up in my neighborhood got growing up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned big brothers, big sisters. One of my friends is a, someone we've been interviewed on the podcast, section. Our friend Carl Sharon. He's been a big brother for many years. So it sounds like you had a big brother or are you a big brother? What's your involvement?
2: I am not a big brother, but I had a big brother. We were matched when I was eight, and we're actually still connected. I had dinner with him pre-COVID, but we we're still very much in touch, and he was a, he had a huge impact in my life. Yeah, Can you
0: talk about amazing. that? Because yeah. everything you described about the cars and the houses, as I talked to my friend Carl about, it's not the cars and the houses necessarily, but it's let me show you Life isn't necessarily what the life you observe is. It can be something else, right? It's a different perspective of achievement, et cetera. So, what were your observations? Like, what was the impact that he had on your life?
2: Well, my parents separated when I was four, and my dad wasn't really a big part of my life back then. I mean, he was always there, but he wasn't an active male role model per se. You know, we're actually very close now, which has been amazing, but at that time, he just wasn't present. And so, My mom wanted for me to have a a male role model. And so we applied for Big Brothers Big Sisters, and it, it, it took quite some time. Sometimes you sort of get lost in the funnel because there's a lot of people that need to be matched and not as many people who want to mentor. And so we finally got matched when I was eight and we would meet up on Sunday afternoons and we'd do small things, big things. We'd go to the park and play basketball or we played tennis together. Or sometimes we would have a chat about focusing in school and doing better. He grew up on Long Island and he worked in real estate. And so I didn't know anyone growing up who was in real estate. He actually did mall management for real estate investment trusts. So Mace Rich, Westfield. So he worked at a mall in New Jersey and I didn't understand mall leasing. I didn't know what that was, but he leased shopping centers. So it was just really great to have this guy who was consistent. He was there for birthdays. He was there for downtimes. When I needed that extra boost, he was always someone that I could talk to, I could confide. And he also just sort of Opened my eyes to possibilities in life. I also think that he helped really shape me into just becoming a better human, because he was just so on it, and it's hard to find people who are always there for you, who are super consistent. And I think as a young man, and certainly as a, a young black male, having that sort of influence was really powerful. So I guess
0: just to dig in a little more, what do you think life would have been like had you not had a big brother?
1: Oh, that is a good question.
2: That is a great question. And you know, it's honestly something that I never thought about. I never really considered because he's been there. Look, I think that I wasn't, I was never the kid who was totally lost, right? I was fortunate that I was smart enough. I was articulate enough to sort of make my way, but it definitely, it helped me level up just by having him there. I don't think I would have been selling crack on the streets or something like that, you know? (laughs) Like any that bit of my life.
0: Yeah, but then you but then you know you could have been Jay-Z and so maybe (laughs) Maybe, just
2: (laughs) I'm gonna have a conversation with him about that now.
1: (laughs) You didn't fulfill your full potential, Castell. You didn't fulfill
2: your full potential. Right. Yeah, it's really hard to say because yeah, I, I definitely think that there are some kids who get involved in Big Brothers, Big Sisters because they're really going off the deep end. The same way that you know a lot of kids who go to boarding school, they'll go to boarding school because they were... Bad kids at home and their parents are shipping them off to boarding school or military school. That was never the case for me because I think that's often the perspective when people are like, oh, your parents sent you to boarding school. What did you do? exactly.
0: Exactly. And I'm like, it was a nerd school. (laughs) I, I think it was a combination of I think what your mom probably wanted for you is this is a better opportunity than I can provide. But also, at least with my parents, I've talked to them about this. It's like you were kind of a handful, <laughs> and it kind of, and they had to tell me that to me in my twenties. But it was like, oh, okay. They're like, maybe it'll be good for you, not just academically, right? And it Beha- was behaviorally. Well, because yeah. still, I want uh, you talked about when did you start at the boarding school?
2: I started when I was essentially ten.
0: Okay, and your awakening, so to speak, of like I'm going to stop trying, was twelve. And for me, it's like a straight correlation. I was trying too hard. And I got to hit the reset button and say, you know what? I'm just gonna try to just be me. And I'm not right. gonna apologize for the comic books. I'm not gonna apologize for the Star Trek, you know, and the weirdness and the emo taste in music before emo was a thing. I was like, this is me. <laughs> and
2: people were accepting of it. Did that happen for you in high school?
0: Yeah. So it was my moment was I my boarding school started at fifteen, the math it was okay. junior, senior year. And it was just it was this painful experience up until that moment of trying to fit in this false thing. I couldn't meet false standard. I couldn't meet up to. And when I went to go to math and the math and science school, which was a boarding school, it was, yeah, I'm just going to be me. And I don't know these people. I don't need to try to fit in with these people. I do, but they're in the exact same situation as me. And what I found was for the first time in my life, I became part of the cool crowd, but the cool crowd wasn't defined by athletics or academics The point definition, because we had jocks in the uncool and the uncool crowd. We had preps in the uncool and the cool crowd. It was the people who chose to be themselves. That was literally versus the people who were faking Mm -hmm. it and trying to play up to the same old hierarchy of Saved by the Bell or whatever you will, right? And that was the thing. But the reason I brought it back to you was that moment, it happened a couple years later, but it was – do you think it would have not have happened had you gone to the boarding
2: school? I think it would have happened. It definitely would have happened. But I think I was just – I had some really challenging times. I remember in my sixth grade. And so like so, my transformation happened seventh grade, right? My sixth grade, we watched Roots. And I don't know if you remember that. It's sort of like there was this ABC miniseries talking about the journey of Kunta Kinte coming to America and the whole thing, right? And so we're studying the Civil War and and slavery and all this stuff. So we were watching Roots in our history class. And we get to the, the point where Kunta is getting hung on the tree. They're telling him that his name is Toby because he's identifying with his African name. And they're saying, yo, your name is Toby. He's saying, no, my name is Kunte. They keep whipping him. They keep whipping him. My classmates thought it was a great idea to call me Toby. Like that was what they took from that. And so having those moments, for me, that was I just can't try to fit in here anymore. I just have to do my own thing. Like I'm just tired. They don't want you, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's... So interesting. Because when you had said that you had given up trying to fit in or like you were over it, I was thinking of it as you being... And I guess, I mean, you you ended up getting there, but I was thinking that you you had a revelation of, I am who I am. I accept who I am. But what I'm hearing from you is, I don't want to be like them. So I don't want to fit in. Is that accurate?
2: I mean, I think it was a piece of that, but it was also part of what you said earlier, where it was just, I, between all the different schools and just essentially just getting it every sort of way, I was just like, you know what? I don't know if it was worth it anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause it was sad. All kids want to have friends and want to be accepted. Right. And to not be able to have that regardless of what you do or how hard you try black people, white people, Asian people, Spanish people, whatever it is, I had to do something differently. That's when I realized it was like, I had to make this change in my behavior to see if that was going to, I would start to receive energy differently. And that, that happened. And once I started to see it happening, I just sort of blazed, <laughs> just continued to blaze that trail. And it's funny because people that know me as a kid, they see me now and they're like, whoa. Yeah. yeah I
0: know. It's <laughs> awesome. It's awesome though. I'm not going to lie. I love that when, when I have those experiences with people. <laughs> because <laughs> i think people i get along with if you had it made the whole time if you were ac slater or eh, slater had issues like ac slater that. i love to oh say by the bell references on, it's actually if you were zach, if you were zach morris zach the whole morris, time yeah. if you were zach morris the whole time i don't want to be your friend if you were zach morrison had a very special episode right and had <laughs> your own revelations and your difficulties and your own realizations yeah we can get along Because the people who go through life, I was talking to a friend about there's a 30 Rock episode, I'm really going off the deep end, but I'm going somewhere, where um, Tina Fey's character (laughs) is dating a character played by John Hamm, the really good looking actor who played Don Draper, right? Mm -hmm. And this guy had kind of coasted through life on his looks and his privilege. And he thought he was the shit, but he'd be like, blue, 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 I speak French. And everyone let him get away with it. And it was like this continuation of his life, because they always got a pass because of how good looking, how rich, how privileged, whatever they were. And there's no humility. I guess that's the point. There's no humility mm-hmm. driven in through trauma, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And if you don't have that,
1: you're going to be a jackass.
0: I right. right. I don't, I don't want to yeah. be friends with jackass.
1: <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you're not a jackass, Castell. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So <laughs> where are you? You're from New York, but where are you originally from? <laughs> so the, I love that we the ask people that question. question yeah. I know. <laughs> where are you really? Where are you really from? Where are you really from, Castell?
2: So I grew up in Harlem. Is that what you what you're meaning? No, no. Sorry, sorry. Just to just to apologize for sharing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, way, the way to ask that question is, castell I'm sure you've gotten this question before. Like, what people are like, and Where are you from? Alabama? No, where are you really from? Alabama. Oh, my parents are, you know, that oh, that great. whole thing. Like when they see the funny name, etc. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, okay, great, yes. So <laughs> we're on the same page now, okay? Because sometimes we have to. I'm from 119th Street, Morningside Avenue. Like totally. really we have to get real granular here. Yeah. No, so my parents are actually both from Martinique, which is a small island in the Caribbean, and they came over to the states. My mom, she was 16. And my dad was 24. Yeah.
1: And then Did they, they come met. up together or
2: yeah. they come over separate? No, actually, quite funny, they met in New York. They had a mutual friend. So my mom was living in the city. She came over first and they had a mutual friend, this guy who's my my godfather, who said to my mom, Hey, Jocelyn, this guy, Christian, he's coming to New York. He needs a place to stay. And, you know, it's sort of that Caribbean mentality is like, if you know somebody, you have a place to stay. It doesn't, yeah. actually, even if you don't know them, if you're like connected to somebody, you just, they're like, Oh yeah, you've got a place to stay. Right. So my dad came over and he was like, I kind of like it here. And then my parents got married <laughs> Well, that was <laughs> fast. The, the, the funny part about that story though, is that my parents never knew each other growing up. Yes. And like I said, you know, they had a mutual friend, this guy, his name is Man, but I found out later in life that my grandfathers were like best friends, but my mom didn't know her dad. And so she never knew my father by proxy of his father. So they were like one degree separated in the Caribbean, but never knew each other until they met in New York. That's crazy. That's
1: that's serendipity. (laughs) So do you identify
2: with your culture
1: in that way? Like, did you visit a lot when you were growing up? Then do you still have family there?
2: So I spent quite a bit of time between Martinique and France when I was a kid, because that's where most of my extended family was or is. And a lot of them are still there. To be honest, I'm not super close with my family. I would consider like my family unit. My mom, my dad, my sister, but the rest of them, I don't know very well. But yeah, I mean, my mom, my dad's both his parents are still in the Caribbean. Actually, well, my grandfather, unfortunately, passed, and aunts and and all that stuff that side of the family. My mom has her sisters and her mother are here in the states, and then her dad is still in the in the Caribbean. So it's sort of interesting because it was definitely a part of my experience. Growing up, I learned how to speak French when I was a kid, but there was a lot of Caribbean influence in my upbringing. My mom taught me how to dance zouk when I was a kid, and I that was a part of Colors and all that stuff. Like that. Wait, was wait, sorry, all part explain
0: of- that. I don't know what you just said.
2: <laughs> dance what? Oh, zouk. So it's a it's a style of music. So you have like zouk and bikini, and there's a whole bunch of Caribbean folk music okay. that's traditional. So like I understand it. Like I understand if someone's speaking Creole or Patois, I don't speak it, but I can understand it. But I had a, a pretty large swath of my life that I didn't go there. I think the last time that I went to the Caribbean was, or to Martinique was in 2003, 2003, 2004. And I haven't been back since. So how many, how
0: many times had you been back
2: in mm. your life? Like in my five, life? 10, 5, 2,
0: order magnitude is what so I'm trying to get at, it,
2: yeah. When I was a kid, I'd spend my summers either there or in France somewhere. So, And those were most, most years through my eighth grade. So I'd probably like 10-ish times in my life, I imagine. I actually, when I was first born, we moved there for a minute, but I was very sick Ironically, I'm allergic to seafood and (laughs) it's not something that's commonly diagnosed over there. So, I mean, we had to leave because I was like on my deathbed at all times. Pretty much the only person of Caribbean descent that's allergic to seafood. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's so unfortunate.
2: <laughs> I know. Maybe that has something to do with it. I don't feel close. Cause I like, I couldn't be a part of the, the
1: food. <laughs> I couldn't eat
2: the food. Yeah. The food literally was killing me. Oh my <laughs> And it's, it's, I remember going back when I was times, I can remember I was like five or six. And in that culture, if you are at the table and you're given food, you eat the food. You don't walk away before you're done eating or whatever it is like you're there until the to the bitter end and i remember my mom had a foster family so i'd spend summers with them and she'd be like you need to finish this food it'd be like this leg of crab and i'm looking at it just like my body is (laughs) getting ready for the the (laughs) you know the anaphylactic (laughs) shock that's about to come on (laughs) so maybe i'm scarred from that
1: (laughs) that sounds awful (laughs) So going back to your parents and heritage, and I guess this is more, we we ask all of our guests this, but did your parents have any expectations of who you would be with in terms of a partnership or in terms of romance? Are you married?
2: I'm not. Okay. No. Are you dating anyone? No. Recently single. I was in a almost six year long distance relationship and that ended last year. But my parents have been very open with that. My mom is, she's just a big ball of love. And she's like, whoever you love, I will accept. She just wants me to be happy. That's the thing that's most important for her. There was this moment when I was younger, where I I feel like I had this thing where she might have said something like, I want you to marry a strong black woman or something like that. But I think she just sort of got over it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> did That did that does not happen. Like, did you end up not dating black women?
2: I have dated some black women, but I will say that it was definitely harder for me for a number of reasons. One, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes is by Chris Rock. And, and I, I paraphrase, but he says something along the lines of people are as faithful as their options. Okay, and <laughs> and I didn't have very much of a pool in New Canaan, Connecticut. I went to college at the University of Denver in Colorado.
0: All, uh, you know, historically black college, obviously, <laughs> exactly.
2: So there is that element, but also as a kid and adolescent, I had a lot of rejection from my own community.
0: Well, you played chess and you spoke French,
2: right? <laughs> Exactly. It's actually been pretty fascinating because growing up, I wasn't as cool because I didn't have like the cool clothes. Like I didn't have any Jordans or whatever. And I didn't have an earring. I didn't have any, whatever it is. Like I just, I wasn't one of the the guys. And- To
0: be clear, I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, so
1: do I.
2: <laughs> I also did not have the Jordans totally, and I also- was Totally,
1: totally get guy. it. And I'm not a guy, but I totally get it.
2: <laughs> I was very easily overlooked by black women growing up. And so eventually my first girlfriend was in high school, white blonde woman from New Canaan, Connecticut. And she just loved me for who I was. And that was really cool to have that sort of relationship with a person that really didn't matter skin color, whatever it is. Obviously, there's things that impacted our relationship, but... I want to ask actually that. As a person
0: of somewhat color that has dated white people, my parents were cool with it. They got over it. They wanted a nice Indian girl. Mm -hmm. But what I found was it was the girl's family that had problems with it. Is that part of what you were alluding to?
2: No, not specifically. Yeah. So I've got a couple of stories here, but I, her parents were amazing. They're super awesome. Just completely brought me in and just made me feel like I was a part of the family. I remember there was one time, I I feel like it was around Thanksgiving or it was was some other dinner time, but there was like a racist uncle or something that came over early and they're like, you shouldn't come downstairs right now. (laughs) So I started to like hide out, (laughs) But, (laughs) but just to sort of like speak to how great they were. There was this time I was on my way back home from, from high school and my girlfriend was driving me home. We were sort of like rolling through town. We had the windows down. Ja Rule was blaring. We're having a great time. And all of a sudden, at a stoplight, we got circled by eight or nine police cars. They drew their weapons. And I have no idea what's going on, right? They're like, you know, put your hands up. Da, 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 da. And she's crying, completely breaking down. And turns out that I matched the description of someone who had committed a robbery in town hours ago. So they got all the questions. Where are you coming from? Who is this person? Is this your car? And my girlfriend's mom, first of all, my girlfriend was traumatized by the experience. She told her parents about it. And her mom went to the police chief and I got a written apology in the newspaper. Like I had a note sent to me, but I also had a note publicly in the newspaper apologizing for that. So when I say they were cool and like completely down with it, they're 100% just awesome. I want to ask a question about
0: that. Yeah, for sure. I have two questions about that. Again, her parents do sound awesome. So, you know, <laughs> ex-girlfriend's parents. So, my two questions. One, come on. When, did you match the description or did you quote-unquote match the description?
2: I mean, I was a, a black male.
0: Yeah, okay. Okay, that was the first question. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah. But it's, I mean, it's one of those things, like, we we're literally driving. It was just the only thing that they could have possibly seen was my arm.
0: Yeah. Okay. I just I just wanted to clarify that. The yeah. second, and this is and I apologize if this. I don't think that first question was insensitive. The second question is insensitive. So apologies <laughs> in advance. Get ready. Have you ever had issues with the law and being in the part of Manhattan that you were in, the Bloomberg era, etc.? And why I ask that is if yes, did you ever get a written out letter of apology for that? Mm-hmm. You had to go to New Canaan to get it.
2: <laughs> so fortunately, I haven't had any real run-ins with the law, but I think that a lot of that has to. Do with my mom,
0: and I didn't mean. I didn't mean. Oh, you're black. You must be bad. No, what I meant was profiling. I was going at my run-ins are with the TSA agents because I'm black <laughs> and I have a beard. <laughs> but what I'm really asking is, yeah. But anyway, sorry, your mom.
2: So I mean, as a kid, I think it would have been the easiest for me to sort of get targeted in Harlem or whatever it is. But I didn't have my pants sagging. I was wearing collared shirts. I looked like oh, you were
0: the, the chess player.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly. I was a total nerd, so I wouldn't have been an easy target to be profiled. However, with that said, I mean, it's definitely happened, whether it's by the law or it's in a retail situation. It's just one of those things. For instance, if ever I get pulled over when I'm driving, I'm super careful. I'm like super cautious. You're the most I'm, nice person I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm the light. nicest person on planet earth. I'm very careful. There's one time I was driving and I got pulled over on Riverside Drive and like 110th Street or 116th Street over by Columbia. And the officer pulled me over and I was trying to get ready because they, I don't know who's they, but I've learned you want to be prepared when the officer comes, have your license, registration, all that stuff, so you give it to them. So I pull out my driver's license, I get the registration. And as I roll down my window, my driver's license dropped in between the seat. Of the driver's side car, right? So the officer comes over, he's like, driver's license registration. Oh, yeah. oh. And oh my God. I'm like, officer, I've got to be honest. I just dropped my license in the seat, cure my hands. Is it okay if I get out of the car? <laughs> I was like, very, very careful. Oh my God. And then I was like, I'm in there. I mean, it, it went in there. So I'm there like, digging underneath the seat. <laughs> and then after that, he was like, field sobriety test. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think I've said this before, but when I can be a very irritable senior cranky pants, right? But when I'm in an airport, I am the nicest, most charming person ever.
1: Oh, yeah. You don't mess with that. I'm clean
0: shaven. I am saying hello with my Southern accent.
1: (laughs) It's It's a survival technique. I mean, it's sad. Yeah,
0: it is. But, uh,
1: you know, you you, you
0: have, have to adapt. To. You have you to be
2: have a chameleon. To. It's super important, and it's definitely helped me through life. Just being able to sort of walk different walks.
0: Yeah, you got you to straight up
2: urkle it up. Yeah, exactly. And people notice. It makes a difference. That's what a powerful think,
1: story. I always feel like there's a pause after we hear a really good story like that, which indicates that it is time for the speed round. Are you ready for speed round, Castell? Bring it. Bring it. Okay. First question. What's one thing about you no one expects?
2: Wow. There's so many things that people (laughs) don't expect about me. Let's see. I became a vegetarian at eight just because I decided it was something I was going to do. Well, you couldn't eat fish, so, you know. Well, I couldn't eat fish, but just one day I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a vegetarian. just going to do that. And I did it for eight years.
0: Wow. Wait, wait. So you did
1: it and now not. And now you're not.
2: Yeah. So the funny thing about that is that I'm not super into vegetables. I mean, I like you know, like your basic vegetables, but the stuff that real vegetarians love, the okra and the eggplant and tofu, stuff like that, like just not into it at all. So my diet was very limited for about eight years and I played in sports in high school and I, I could not break a hundred pounds. Like I just couldn't. And my senior year, I was captain of the track team and I was just so thin And actually, funny backstory. I know this is a speed round, but I I get a little wordy with my stories. I'm sorry. (laughs) When I decided to become a vegetarian, we were down with some family friends in Ocala, Florida. We went to this like sort of it was this meditation retreat for the weekend, and everyone there was a vegetarian or vegan. So that was sort of my inspiration. But I remember one of the last things that I ate was a Burger King Whopper, (laughs) which is so strange. Growing up, we. Didn't eat junk food. We had junk food day. It was like one Friday a month. We get dollar to buy candy. I'd buy some like Skittles and now or laters, we can get them for like five cents. And so we had a Whopper and it was like my first Whopper ever. And it was freaking delicious. <laughs> and so every time I saw one of those flame boiled Whopper commercials from Burger King for the next eight years, my mouth would just start watering. <laughs> and so after eight years of vegetarianism my first meal was a whopper i just couldn't take it anymore i was like i'm getting this i'm making it happen (laughs) it's totally gross but like that's how it happened just one day i was like this this has to come to an end i'm getting a whopper
0: (laughs) all right so to stay on the theme of food what's your favorite mom dish
2: so I should first like shout out my mom because she's just an amazing cook and not in the way that she makes these super gastronomic dishes or whatever it is, but my mom's the kind of person, I would love to see her in one of those iron chef or whatever. are so like, you, you get what, like it, a basket. Go ahead. Sorry. It just struck me. This is a TV show idea.
0: Literally mom chefs competing against each other. because like. I- well, you asked the mom dish question because I think there are some bad mom chefs, so we should leave them out on the show, <laughs> on the this, on this hypothetical show. But yeah, man, put the moms against each other and less about them competing with each other because this, this is my favorite question of the whole podcast. Right? Yeah,
2: anyway, yeah. All right, So your mom needs to be on TV. Let's go. So she'd be on like one of the Iron Chefs. They're like, you got a basket of grapes and some shrubs and a lamb shank and some <laughs> coffee beans. Make something. And my mom would just hook it up. Yeah, but what's the thing you crave? Yeah, what's her signature? My mom's sort of signature is she makes like a super bomb broccoli quiche, and she's also known for her banana bread, which is, I actually don't like eating bananas, but I love her banana bread. Wow. Yum. Yeah. That sounds good. What's your least favorite food? (sighs) So many things. Probably, I'd say maybe, probably eggplant. Just so slimy and gross. I just can't do it.
1: Ah, Yeah. That's a good point. I never really thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. You're just, you're just
0: not eating eggplant the right way, guys. Come on. <laughs> it's, it's just <laughs> it's never going to happen. The, the, the mom <laughs> question is where like, I fall in love with people's moms based on the foods they describe. And the other question is where I start to hate the guest. I'm glad it's <laughs> I'm like, you're an idiot. You don't like
2: eggplant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry we had to end things on this note.
0: <laughs> we, got, we, got, we got a couple more. We got a couple more.
2: Who's someone out there that you would
0: want to interview on a podcast?
2: That's interesting. You know, I've never been big into celebrities and stuff like that, but I, I think I'm really fascinated by Elon Musk, just his whole entrepreneurial journey. He's just such a fascinating character. I mean, for so many reasons. He's totally batshit, but also <laughs> so <Great>. awesome. <laughs>
0: I like that you led with that. You led with that though.
2: (laughs) What I think I I admire most about him, and this is, if I were to interview him, I just love the fact that so many times in his life, he just put it all on the line and not like in a small way. Oh yeah. Just in the most insane kind of way, just because he believed so deeply in what he was doing. And I think for me as an entrepreneur and someone that started things many times, seeing that it's just so inspiring. And I've definitely just been like, look, I'm going to roll the dice. Like Elon Musk did it, so it should work out.
1: (laughs) Okay, last question. What does being a model minority mean for you?
2: It's a really interesting question. I guess I'll start by like sort of applying it to me because I don't think that really at any point in my life until maybe more recently that I ever think of myself as a model minority. I just thought of myself as a guide trying to make it in this world. And as I've connected with people over time, they'll say, wow, I can't believe you've done this and you've made it here and you persevered through this. You know, for me, it was really just like a day-to-day life experience. Just Life is hard and you got to sort of push through to, to make it happen. So it's interesting now in my adult life and professional life, being connected with other minorities who share a similar story and sort of like understanding sort of collectively, the, the the things, the trials and tribulations that we've had to go through to get to where we are. And that's been really fascinating. But I, I think that the overarching thing is that I don't think that anyone sought out to be a model minority. I think that for the majority of us, I guess I'll speak for myself. I know I just wanted to make my parents proud. And I think that anything that I've done in my life has been with that regard, knowing that they've put, they've sacrificed so much for me that I wanted to sort of pay it back and then also pay it forward. And when we were chatting before this interview, I kind of like what I want my takeaway from this to be. I think for me, that's the most important thing is sort of sharing my story, sharing the things that I've gone through because I hope that that can impact other people that came from similar situations because there is hope. And I hope that I can be a beacon of that for other people. And I presume that for other model minorities, we share that, is that whether or not we anticipated or anticipated doing this. We sort of got into this point in our lives and, and and now we have the opportunity to to share that bounty with those around. And so it's a real privilege and it's an honor and I, and I appreciate you thinking of me as a model minority because most of the time I just think of myself as a guy just trying to make it happen. Well, you are well, so, we're so much model more. We are. Yeah, you're and so much more. You're so much more than that.
1: <laughs> Thank you for being on the show with us,
2: Castel. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun.
1: And that's our show. Like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Now here's a preview of our next
1: episode. I think I've always been a rebel. <laughs> yeah. But you didn't care to fit in. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't I didn't really feel that urge or that need
3: and I'm not one who likes to conform, which is funny because I spent 15 years in corporate, but I'm okay walking to the beat of my own drum.
0: That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel.
1: And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
0: Remember, we're all auto minorities out there.
1: We'll talk to you soon.
3: It's happening daily.